Before we get started, I'd like to thank Wisconsin Cheese for supporting this season. Hello, I'm Alex Redgrave, Executive Editor at Sever. Welcome to our new podcast, Place Settings. This season, we're traveling across the U.S. to meet the chefs, farmers, makers, and creatives who are transforming the food space through their unique connection to a place, from the high desert of New Mexico to the buzzy streets of Brooklyn. Each week, our editors will chat with a food innovator whose personal journey is as compelling as what they're putting on the plate. Let's dig in. This week's guest has without a doubt influenced what you eat. When she opened her restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley in 1971, Alice Waters had no plans for pioneering California cuisine or launching the farm-to-table movement across the U.S. But following her passion for market-fresh seasonal cooking, sparked by a trip to France while she was a student, led her to work directly with local organic farmers and spotlight the origins of each ingredient on her menu. Those ideals have since reshaped the entire American food landscape, from grocery stores to fine dining restaurants to even the public school system. In 1995, Waters launched the Edible Schoolyard Project in Berkeley, which now includes thousands of participating schools around the world. Drawing on her training as a Montessori teacher, the nonprofit empowers students to grow and cook their own food, and in the process addresses issues like climate change, social inequality, and public health. Waters has also been a vocal advocate for national school lunch reform, calling on presidents from George W. Bush to Barack Obama to promote the benefits of healthy eating. Despite her massive impact and a career that spans more than half a century, the educator, chef, activist, and author has kept a fairly low profile. At 78, she is celebrating a few more firsts. Last year, she helped open Lulu, a restaurant in LA's Hammer Museum. And this summer, she welcomed her first grandchild. Our senior culture editor, Megan Zhang, caught up with Waters at her home in Berkeley and at Chez Panisse, where it all began. There I am, day one. It's just about to open shape, and he says, picture of me at the gate. So, we're walking into the dining room downstairs, and the light's coming in from the west side of the building. It almost changes the whole feeling into a Vermeer painting. <laughs> I'm Alice Waters, and I'm the owner of Chez Panisse Restaurant and the founder of the Edible Schoolyard Project. This is all the produce that's just come in from the farm. We got all herbs in, they're really fresh, and we're gonna get... We have some parsley, purple basil, mint, sage, thyme. He's also a farmer. 
cucumber is a big word. But I, I do I do grow a lot of tomatoes. I grow 45 varieties of tomatoes. So. Yes. <laughs> I can see some of Bob's carrots. <laughs> These are extra big <laughs> and nourishing. I'm feeling one. These are the best turnips. I had them the other night downstairs. I thought I have never tasted Tokyo turnips. These little white turnips. They were so good in my whole life. <laughs> While studying abroad in France in the 1960s, you had this kind of culinary awakening after experiencing the way of life there. Can you describe that time? Well, it was a moment that came after the free speech movement at the University of California in Berkeley. And I had a political awakening there about free speech, but also about civil rights and the war in Vietnam. I just felt like I needed to wake up to what was going on in the world. And I really didn't know what I was getting into, but it turned out that I had a deep dive into the culture of France and had French friends who were so very specific about the food of that particular region. It was also beautiful because of the farmer's markets at every neighborhood around in Paris, and I had never traveled before, so I didn't know what to expect. It was not just about the food. It was about music, and it was about art. I traveled, I hitchhiked, actually, out to Brittany, and we went to the water, and they were just pulling in the oysters, (laughs) and we were eating them right there on the beach. And, of course, when I got back home, I wanted to eat like the French. I wanted to live like the French. (laughs) How did that French perspective on food differ from the way that you were raised around food? I was lucky to have the victory garden of my parents when I was very young. We never ate really in restaurants. The only one I remember well was the automat in New York City. And you would look into these little windows and the piece of lemon meringue pie was right there. And when you put in your quarter, you could see somebody in the window cutting the pie and putting it there. The people that started that business, they cared about their employees. They cared about the beauty of the food, the taste of the coffee. There were all kinds of artists that would come and hang out. Probably something else affected me at the automat besides the little windows with the lemon meringue pie. Living in France introduced you to these long-standing slow food values, but then, as you mentioned earlier, you went back to UC Berkeley, where everything was about change. How did being a student at Berkeley at the time impact your perspective on food? I felt empowered 
to do whatever I had a passion to do. I never even questioned, could I open a restaurant? Did I have the experience? I just thought I could do this with my friends. I wanted a job where I connected with the people that work there, that it was meaningful work. I've thought about that so much in these days of what is meaningful work because we've so lost that concept. And I think cooking real food with ingredients that are seasonal, delicious, and ripe for other people, whether it's your children, your friends, is meaningful because it's about health. It's about supporting the people who take care of the land. It's about your own creativity. Well, your work has since gone on to spark an entire farm-to-table revolution, and your approach to shaping public policy has always stayed, in some ways, similar to how you run your restaurant. How has that been effective, do you think? With the Edible Schoolyard, I really think it has been effective. (laughs) I mean, not just because it caught the attention of the principal of Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School with a thousand teenage kids. He really believed that with my Montessori experience and my passion for food, that I could come to his school and make something beautiful happen in terms of nourishment He didn't know what I really had in mind (laughs) until I went and saw the space and I gave him a rundown that I didn't want just a garden and a kitchen for students to be in. I wanted a garden and a kitchen classroom where the students would learn their academic subjects. So that when they were studying the geography of the Middle East, they were cooking pita bread. They were cooking hummus and greens, smelling it and tasting it. And the garden classroom the same way. That even if it was a music class in the garden or an art class, you could be there in nature and seeing and feeling the energy of leaves dropping, all of that. I knew that the idea of using your hands and smelling and tasting allowed you an experience that you wouldn't forget. That's the experience that I had in France. And I think the joy of learning in those circumstances was a huge surprise. I knew the teachers would love it, but I never knew the students would be immediately engaged, and they were. This redwood tree must be over 100 years old. 
it just goes soaring up there above my garden. And I just planted what I use all the time, mint everywhere, <laughs> because I make mint tea. Mm. I have lemon verbena over there. I have a huge bush of rosemary because I love rosemary. Right behind it is a Meyer lemon, a Runcor lime on the other side. I have bay leaves. I have a fig tree. The problem is that figs don't normally get ripe, but I use their leaves to cook with. So I bake fish and fig leaves. I use them to flavor a cream. Beautiful little strawberries. Well, oops, there is one. Ooh, it's kind of sweet. <laughs> I didn't think it would be sweet at this time of year. The most important spot over there is my compost. I have two. One, it's sort of cooking, and the other one is when it's cooked. <laughs> it smells pretty good. <laughs> now we're walking out front where I planted a victory garden at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I've ended up planting what I don't think the deer will eat. Sage, lots of parsley and lovage. And this little area, I decided to dig up the space between the sidewalk and the street. It's owned by the city and uh, Ron Finley the gorilla gardener from down in LA, showed that this is possible to do. He was cited for planting this area on his street, and he had to go to court, but he won the case. And so it inspired me to plant garlic out here, dig up that grass, and put in something edible. I've got a... Uh, a sign that says your victory garden counts more than ever um, and it's from the 40s when we had that whole victory garden movement and I guess I'm going back to my parents victory garden that they had during World War II and we ate out of it because we were a family of six and couldn't afford <laughs> to do otherwise This picnic table has come to symbolize a place to share ideas. And I have invited many people to this table over the last two years who have really opened my mind. Janet Napolitano came, who was the president of the University of California. And I said to Jenna, could we make food 
part of your climate neutrality initiative for 2025. And she paused. And then she said, I don't know why not. And I nearly fainted. All of those values are so critical. And we can actually eat those values, <laughs> if you will. When the Sever editors are putting together an epic cheese board, a creamy cacio pepe, or a melty chile relleno, we look to one place for our star ingredient, Wisconsin, the state of cheese, where rich international influences meet a unique American terroir. That one-of-a-kind cheesemaking culture has flourished since immigrants from Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, and beyond first settled in the region's lush green hills almost 200 years ago. The soil and water, nurtured by glacial sediment, provided the perfect conditions for recreating their favorite cheeses. Today, those centuries-old skills, combined with the freshest milk available, has won Wisconsin more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. From grass-fed alpine-style cheeses to cave-aged raw milk cheddars, Wisconsin cheesemakers blend tradition with innovation to create an impressive artisanal assortment that will wow at your next meal. Look for the Proudly Wisconsin Cheese Badge at your local grocery store and discover your next favorite cheese today. Why have you never chosen to expand Chez Panisse or to build up your own personal brand like almost every other chef uh, who has achieved your same level of fame I wanted to work with my friends, and here we are 51 years later. I'm still engaged with the people who work there. I'm inspired by them. I'm always in conversation with them. It's like a family. I'm constantly working on the restaurant to make the kitchen feel good for the cooks. I wanted it to be inspiring for everybody. However, with the Edible Schoolyard, we did start a network just to show you the network. We have 6,700 schools, and it means that the values of edible education are understood in countries around the world countries that have lived in this way, in thinking about food as central to their lives, understanding how critical education is, valuing teaching, caring about what children eat. And that's what the Edible Schoolyard is deeply about, the values of stewardship, equity, diversity. It's about building that community. Education has helped spread your food philosophy far and wide. Is grassroots still the best strategy, in your opinion? I mean, planting a garden is revelatory. 
because you think you know. And then you find out that what you wanted to plant doesn't grow very well where you planted it. And you have to think about another spot. You begin to see the subtleties. I mean, Carlo Petrini of Slow Food believed that farmers were the intellectuals of the land, that we had so much to learn from them. And I do deeply believe that because the important part of what we do at Chez Panisse is buying directly from the farmers and ranchers and fishers without a middleman. And when we did that right at the beginning, everybody wanted to sell to us. And we've become friends with all different people, seasonal peaches from Masamoto, <laughs> you know. Bob Kennard, our first farmer, was bringing us nettles and purslane about 15 years ago, and he's saying, use it. And we started making nettle pizza. Who knew that people would love that? But the important part, this is restaurant-supported agriculture, where you're taking care of the farm. You're buying everything that they grow. And that's what happened with a baker at Chez Panisse. He was a young guy. He started baking baguettes for us, and we loved it. And we said, we can't have you do it in the restaurant. Why don't you start a business? And we'll buy everything that you make. So we went to the bank, and he got a loan because we were buying it all. So it was no risk for the bank. And... He's ended up teaching bakers around the whole Bay Area about how to bake bread. And it's just been hugely successful. Was that Acme by any chance? That was. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. He was willing to work in a regenerative way. There is a whole group of bakers who really collaborate with each other. You've said before that regenerative agriculture is crucial for our future. Can you describe that farming practice? Well, I'm not a farmer, but I believe, of course, in the taste of it. And it's because the soil is allowed to be all it can be, all the bugs, all the worms, all the things that are in it are important for that carrot. And I sort of... Think of the metaphor of running a regenerative kitchen where every person has an opinion or a skill or an idea and we can make something that's greater than the sum of the parts. So we all are putting our piece into the meal. It's constantly a work in progress. And that's how I think of regenerative act that it's all of those parts, the compost in the soil, the cover crops that are on the land, the untilled soil. These are all important for the nourishment and the taste of the food. 
What do you think is this next generation's biggest challenge to overcome in the food space? Let's just say that we have been thoroughly indoctrinated by a fast food culture in the last 50, 60 years. We not only have eaten the food that is not good for us, but we have adopted the values that come with the food, that more is better, that time is money, the idea that we should have anything we want whenever we want it, and it's okay to waste. There's always more where that came from. It's changed not only our diets, but our democracy. We've lost our respect for the farmers, the ranchers, the fishers, the people who give us this food. And we've lost respect for teachers. Those are the two people that feed us. And so I really am thinking about the food in the schools, how the purchasing could be an economic engine for every state in this country. Imagine if you were buying just local food. And we were doing that 70 years ago. We ate differently at every time of year. And that is something we need to do again. Speaking of learning more about our relationship with food, as we all know, the pandemic really upended supply chains. What silver linings have you seen come from this moment in history in terms of how we eat? Many silver linings. Food is precious. And when it's picked to unripe, it doesn't have the nutrition or the taste. And it's really important for the planet that we don't move food around the world. It is contributing heavily to the climate catastrophe that is on the horizon. But, you know, countries that have always considered food as something critical to their health and their everyday lives, to bring it back comes very quickly. We just have a harder job <laughs> because we never grew food for those reasons. We grew it for quantity rather than quality. We didn't think about what it was. Like Edna Lewis, who's the Southern cook, who talked about her garden. I admired her so much because she thought of food in that way, the aliveness of food, the energy that it gives you. It's not garlic harvest time, so I'm always looking inside to see the little sprout that's forming, which is a tiny bit bitter. And I'm just taking that little green part out. And I put this in my 
mortar with a little bit of salt got ridges in it and so when you move around the pestle it makes the garlic into a fine paste. I got some vinegar, put it in there, the salt and the vinegar are doing something good to the garlic. If I leave it here a few more minutes. It's going to be perfect. I'm just going to put a little black pepper in there, too. And I make a mix from my own vinegar of a barrel of vinegar that was started 25, 30 years ago. I, I got a little bottle that became the mother for the subsequent vinegars that I made. Mixing up all the different colors of leaves. I love this sort of mescaline salad. There's bitter little rocket and chicories mixed in with oak leaf lettuces that are purple. I always eat mixed salad with my hands, even when I'm in the restaurant. Last year was exactly 50 years after you opened Chez Panisse. You helped launch the new restaurant Lulu in Los Angeles. What did you want to do differently? It wasn't that I wanted to do something differently. It's that I wanted to be able to invite the powers that be at the University of California <laughs> to lunch, <laughs> to feed them an idea. And the Hammer Museum is owned by UCLA. And I've always wanted a restaurant and a museum because I wanted to demonstrate the beauty of food. So for those two reasons, and the fact that the UC Berkeley has been so invaluable to Chez in terms of bringing the culture of the university, whether it's Yo-Yo Ma or whether it was the Dalai Lama, <laughs> it's just been such a wonderful experience to be in the proximity of the university. And I imagined that Lulu could be that too. And I knew that we wanted to build a regenerative network for the restaurant, but we wanted it to spill over into UCLA. And I think having that space and bringing people that are important climate activists to the table that really understand how important edible education is, not just on the campus, but for K through 12 in LA. That has been so rewarding. You recently welcomed a new granddaughter. What is the one thing you hope to impart to her from your love of food? 
Well, I think I already imparted it to my child. (laughs) And she has every part of my love of food and life. She makes good fun of me, but she has deeply understood the values that I made an effort to impart to her. I planted the plants in the backyard so that she could go out there and smell them when she was very little. I wanted aromatic rosemary and sage and basil. I always made her an outrageous lunch, which she talks about at great length. And she's a really good cook, too. (laughs) Like mother, like daughter. (laughs) Well, I've never considered myself a great cook. I am a great taster. And I can cook certain things really well. But I have never had that French training. And so I'm, I'm always hanging out with people <laughs> who know how to make that souffle. You're still spreading your philosophy all over the world. Is there anything else you hope to achieve in your career? I've never thought of achieving anything. I'm lucky we did shape anise well enough so that we could all make a living. But I never went out with the idea of either making money or spreading the word until I got terribly worried about the next generation and about climate. And then I realized that we needed to spread the word in a big old way. And I am so happy that the Edible Schoolyard has just managed to get out there by itself. But it's not enough. We must make a change in the way that we produce food, in this country, it is really deeply about our democracy. Hey, let's start the victory gardens again. (laughs) How about one on the White House lawn right now? Not the back lawn, but the front lawn, because we could grow food, and it could be a symbol to the world that we care. But I know that presidencies before have inspired people to grow food, and we must do it, not just for a war effort, for a peace effort. That's our show for this season. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support the Edible Schoolyard Project, an anonymous donor is matching all amounts until December 31st. You can visit the link section in our episode description for more info. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Until we're back on the air, check out our new site at siver.com where you can find daily recipes from around the world, our editors' favorite tools and tips, travel features, and a whole lot more. Have a great rest of the year. I'm your host, producer, and the creator of this podcast, Alex Redgrave, and here are all the incredible people who bring place settings to life. The show is also produced by Ali Alkiza, executive creative producer, Hallie Petro, 
Head of production, Pat Sullivan. Associate producer, Kimu Elolia. Production assistant, Alex Thiel. The theme music and original composition is by Julian Fader and Justin Morris. Music edit, sound design, and mix by Rob Ballingal, with support from Kelly Ostman and Owen Shearer. Music supervision by Justin Morris. Our tape sync and field recordist in Berkeley is Jonathan Davis. At Sever, our chief content officer is Kate Berry. The podcast visual design is by Britt Ashcraft. Play Settings is recorded and produced with Sonic Union in New York City. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.